0: Welcome to the West Side Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in.
1: Let me start with a story. It's a little bit of of an endearing one or a a difficult one, but it was a Thursday morning, 7.15 a.m. I just came out of the shower. The phone rings. I was living in a home in Laval. I was came to back then we had landlines, so I walked to the phone in my kitchen, and uh, it was the corner of my kitchen, right near my patio door. And uh, my hair was still wet. I had hair back then. My hair was still wet, and my older brother called, and I, I immediately knew what he was calling about. And he said, "Dave." Uh, Dad passed away 15 minutes ago. And um, that morning, hearing that message, we were walking through a season of my dad's life where he was um, fighting cancer. That morning, the whole day changed. You could plan your day, you could plan uh, a week, but then when something like that happens, everything changes, right? And so that morning, everything changed. Whatever I had planned, whatever I was thinking I was gonna do, now was dictated by this phone call. Now was dictated by this news by this reality. And I thought about that day as we're going to look in this morning's text because have you ever started a day in such a way where you knew everything would be different? Like you didn't plan it the night before necessarily, but everything would be different and you'd have to follow the course of the day regardless of where the outcome was going to lead, regardless of where this day was going to take you. Now, I apologize for such a somber illustration, but it's what came to mind when I thought of somewhat losing control of a day, not being able to dictate my next move uh, in ways that I would maybe want to choose. And we've been on a series called The Journey to Easter, looking at the last week of Jesus's life, traditionally called Holy Week. And today we explore the day that Jesus dies, crucifixion day. And it started like this. If you got your Bibles, Mark chapter 15, and we're going to be in and out of that chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing. My hope actually for today is that once we're done, you'll want to go read Mark 15 and maybe the other gospel writers telling of that day. So I hope we can have enough of it to immerse ourselves in it and uh, not enough of it so you can go dig in yourself. Our groups this week uh, actually worked through this passage uh, here on site and in homes, and it was wonderful. But let's start, let's start a few verses of Mark 15 together. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But still Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Let's just pause for a moment. God, we want to posture ourselves to sit in this day as we read it from the Gospels. Would you grab our attention? Would you help us um, have a sense of what it was like to be present that day in any way possible. But ultimately, God, we want to hear your voice uh, speak through um, your word today. And so we surrender to that. In your name we pray. Amen. Mark starts off, and other gospel writers would do similar, where they tell us it's the morning, and they tell us that the religious leaders made their plans. There was thinking and reflection and intention around this day. Plans from the early start of this day, basically to bring about Jesus' death. If bullet journals existed back then, maybe it was like, point, get Jesus to Pilate. Point two, kick off some chaos. Maybe he'll get arrested. And if you uh, chart out the three goals that you want to complete in a day, maybe one of their top goals that day in their journal was, get Jesus killed. And this is how the day started. They made their plans. What I find fascinating about Mark 15 is that there's passive grammar almost throughout the whole telling of this story, this moment of Jesus' life. What I mean by that passive grammar is things are being done to Jesus. Things are being done to Jesus. Verse 1, we read, they led him away. That was done to him. They handed him over to Pilate. Verse 10 reminds us that it was, the chief, it was, it was in the self-interest of the chief priest to hand him over to Pilate. Verse 15 reminds us that they, ha- they had him flogged. They handed, had him handed over to be crucified. We'll read a few verses here, verse 16 to 20. And look again of this passive grammar, this happening to Jesus. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place and called together the whole company of the soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, Hail King of the Jews. And again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling to their knees. In mockery, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, they put on his clothes again, and they led him out to crucify him. These are all things that are happening to Jesus. He is walking through this, and they're being done to him. He's not in in a sense controlling that moment. There's something different about this day because Jesus allows these things to happen to him and it's leading him right to crucifixion. Now, if you've read the gospels, you will know that Jesus tends to be in control. He's not controlling. He's not, you know, dominating in that way, but he remains in control. When the disciples, you know, were, even when we think about the story a couple of weeks ago, like, to, to get to the, um, to pick up a donkey and find a person, Jesus is saying, go do this, go do that, this is what's going to happen. When, earlier in the gospel stories, things happen, he, he ha- performs a miracle, he teaches in a way with authority, and everybody's enamored by him, and they want to tell people, and his response is, no, 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 don't tell anybody who I am. Not yet. He's controlling the story. He's controlling the perception often you hear him say, let's stay here when the disciples want to go, or let's go there when the disciples want to stay, or we want to go over. He's directing things. And one of the most, you know, famous words of Jesus' invitation to us, which is directive, is follow me, right? Follow me. Interesting, John chapter 3, verse 30, we read this. In the moment where they try to arrest him, it says, John says, no one laid laid, hand on, laid hands on him because his hour did not yet come. Jesus controlled the narrative, controlled the moment. Several chapters later, as John describes in chapter 18, he's confronted by soldiers to arrest him in the garden, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he says, I am he. So from this moment of like, hey, the hour has not yet come, to my hour has now come. It it shifts, it changes. Jesus moves from purposeful resistance, as he, in a sense, directs and guides the narrative, to to purposeful relinquishment or personal resignation. And it's probably one of the most difficult things to discern in life is to distinguish the moments when we're meant to to resist or fight or when we're meant to, to let go or relinquish. It's a difficult decision in life when our ambition should lead us to move or our ambition should lead us to wait. Our ambition should lead us to act or our ambition should lead us to let go. And somehow, Jesus knew when to resist and when to relinquish, and both those decisions were out of his purpose. Both those decisions were purposeful. So when we get to this scene, told by Mark and the other gospel writers, that this is happening to him, that these things are taking place to him, it's very different. And it gives us an echo of some of the prophetic words from Isaiah 53, one of the famous passages that describes or echoes or looks towards the suffering of the Messiah, 53 verse 7, Isaiah says that the Messiah would be like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Led to the slaughter. And we get an image that's quite common uh, of Jesus from Isaiah or of the Messiah. Later we know it's Jesus, the image of a suffering servant. The image of Isaiah's prophetic description of the Messiah. In a sense, he's a servant. He's, he's, a, he's a royal king. He's envisioned as a royal king with power and authority. Isaiah in that chapter actually says he's exalted. He's lifted up. There's something powerful. There's something kingly about this, this servant. But then Isaiah also envisions a suffering servant, unlike the kings of the world. And this suffering servant, this royalty, this king would, ha- would not have a military uprising, would not create a rebuilding of the temple, was not enamored with crowds, even though crowds got close to him. Sometimes he just kind of stepped away and is like, I'm not rushing to the crowds. I don't need the crowds, even though sometimes they're here. Mark's crucifixion story fits Isaiah's vision of the Messiah. And if you read through it, what struck me this week as we were with our groups uh, just, just working through this text was two words come out six times each as Mark tells us this story. The first word that's written six times in this telling is the word king, is this idea of a, of a royal servant. Thinking back to Isaiah. Six times Mark brings, this, brings us close enough to hear the voice of Pilate, The voice of the soldiers, the voice of the chief priests that refer to Jesus as king. We get close enough to the scene of the cross where a sign is placed there where they give him a label, where they give him a name. He's called the king of the Jews. Jesus never utters the word king. Jesus never says in that moment, I'm a king. Jesus never says, call me king. Mark is telling us this story and six times... Even though it's said by other people and then just placed on a sign, six times the word king comes up. He makes sure this title, this word is present. And I don't think it's by accident because it echoes Isaiah 53, but it also fits into how Mark tells us the story of Jesus. Right from Mark chapter 115, he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, he quotes Jesus, repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. And just five days earlier, the triumphal entry, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is celebrated as a potential king. They see him coming, and they're like, maybe he's the one, maybe he's going to be the true messiah. Maybe he's the one who will save us. Hosanna, God save us. These palms on the floor as, as Jesus on a donkey walks. It's a, it's a humble entry, but it's still an entry. It's still like a civil procession with shouts of affirmation hailing him as king, in a sense. So King Jesus, King Jesus... And Mark, somehow, in the middle of telling us this story of all these things being done to Jesus, without Jesus ever uttering the word, Mark lets us know that other people use the word king all throughout that day. And Mark uses another word six times. Now, don't get caught up on, you know, it's equal measure here, but it is kind of cool that it's written both, kind of given in the same amount of space in the story. And the word that comes up six times is the word crucified. Six times king, six times crucified. Again, never said by Jesus. The religious planet, the crowds want it, Pilate allows it, history takes note of it. Six times in this story, the word crucified comes up. And the question is, can this person, can Jesus be a true king, a divine king, a God becoming king and Messiah? Can he be crucified? Does it make sense? Do these two words even work together? Do they function together? Should they be together? Is it blasphemous to even put these words together, give them equal measure in this story, in this moment, in this description of Jesus? But the reality is, is the whole story leads to it. The whole story always leads to this. Fleming Rutledge says that Jesus' sacrificial life led to his sacrificial death. And what's fascinating is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they all, all, all of them give massive attention to the cross as the climax of the story of Jesus' life. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago, this week of Jesus' life gets one-third of the attention of the gospel writers as they tell us who Jesus is. Massive attention to the cross as the climax of Jesus' story. Fleming Rutledge would say this later. She says, The crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity, the unique feature by which everything else, including the resurrection, is given its true significance. There's something so powerful about what happens this day, but what happens to Christ, what he walks through. And the question is, why? Why a suffering servant Because, to be honest, uh, when those who wanted a Messiah heard that phrase, they're probably thinking, oh, the Messiah is going to make our enemies suffer. Or they just thought, this is ridiculous. Our Messiah will not be a suffering servant. He will never suffer. But Isaiah calls him a suffering servant. Mark here puts these two words together. He's our crucified king. He's our crucified king. Why, though? And it seems that the world needs to be rescued and restored. We know that, we feel that, we felt that, we see that. The world was groaning for salvation. The great happy streak or whether they're on something that sometimes doesn't uh, allude them to this truth or this reality, the truth is the world needed and needs to be rescued and restored. And here's the thing. The Roman Empire, which was a very big piece of this puzzle for the Jews at the time, for the gospel writers, uh, for the whole era where, where Jesus was a part of, because it was under Roman occupation, the, the, the way to save people for Rome was, hey, Rome had an idea. Their vision was Pax Romana. They were going to give everybody peace. But the way they were going to give everybody peace involved wiping everyone and everything out that had no, they had no purpose for. The way they were going to give everybody peace was, was coercing everyone into their version of peace. Peace my way. It was making an example of people who didn't participate in their only one to be crucified. You didn't only see one cross in that area that day or that season. You saw multiple crosses, tens, hundreds, more crosses. And each person who hung on those crosses was someone who didn't abide by Rome's rules. Sometimes for the simplest thing. Like Jesus, falsely accused and arrested and put on a cross. Each person hung was someone who didn't abide by Romans' rules, and they were, that was the path towards their peace. But see, God, God was never and will never rescue the world using the ways of the world to do it. In fact, if we get nothing out of today, can we just take that for a second? And if we're ever tempted to accomplish God's ways with the ways of the world, just realize it's not the right path to go. If we, ever, if we think this should be stopped and we want to stop it with the ways of the world, it's not the way God wants to fix it. If you want to save someone or help someone or encourage someone, or you're mad about something going on in our culture, it, ne- it, should, it will never be truly restored using the ways of the world if they dishonor the ways of God. Sometimes they might overlap and not seem so contrasting, but oftentimes... It's not the ways of of the Lord. The way God was going to rescue the world was God was going to enter into our deepest need. And he inserts himself in the place of sin, in the place of pain, in the place of evil, in the place of death, in the place of injustice. Now, Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, and you know, he had a track record of being with the poor, being with the marginalized, uh, associating with the oppressed in the suffering of his day. But this day, this day, he was in full solidarity, full solidarity with the suffering of the world. God placed himself under his own sentence of evil. God placed himself under his own sentence of evil in Christ on a cross. When we read about God's wrath in scripture, uh, it's God's wrath against evil, against what we looked at a couple of months ago, the Babylonian structures of our world that are the powers of death and evil and destruction and injustice. God's justice, which is another maybe word for God's wrath, God's justice is, is in opposition to all that is evil in the world but the way he comes to make the world right is to actually substitute himself underneath the sentence of everything that's going wrong. The way God chooses to make things right is to substitute himself under the sentence of everything that's going wrong. And this just blows all of our minds that God would substitute himself, would insert himself to a violence we see in the crucifixion during the work of the enemy. Matthew chapter 26 says it was into the, the hands of sinners that Christ was, was given to. Sometimes we gotta be careful what we say God is doing on the cross to himself, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit. They all work together in tandem, in unity, and love. In this moment, Christ is handed over to sinners. God, in, God inserts himself in Christ Underneath his own sentence, he substitutes himself. This is how Anti Wright describes it. He says, God's plan to rescue the world from evil would be put into effect by evil doing its worst to the servant, to the Messiah, thereby exhausting its power. In other words, by the time evil was done with Christ, by the time the sentence was done, evil power was exhausted and the clock just started ticking. Until its final demise. And the day that everything begins to change is that day, it's that moment. And it's so countercultural, it's so paradoxical to our world how, how we think we're gonna win, how we think we're gonna accomplish something, how we think salvation happens, how we think we should rescue things and change things and restore things. It's so countercultural. God substitutes Himself. Something happens that day that just breaks everything and yet starts something fresh i was talking to jocelyn alex's wife she's talking about her dad who years ago had a really crazy accident on a construct construction site he fell a four floors on a off a scaffold four floors and i'm like and (laughs) and so she said he like he had bruises he went to the hospital but he was he was okay like god spared him in that moment but that okay that's great that's like wow god amazing like but the the odd thing is that before this accident happened he struggled with pains in his back hernia struggles a whole bunch of other things and when he fell and and, and really like that just horrible accident and went to the hospital all his old pains also went away <laughs> so it's like like he breaks his back only to heal his body you know like like something broke that day in a sense when he fell but everything began to heal it, it it almost doesn't. Make, it actually doesn't make sense. Like, how does that happen? But it happened, and that's in a sense what's happening at the death of Christ. It's like everything breaks, but everything starts to heal. Everything is crushed, but everything starts to heal. God inserts himself in the most countercultural way underneath the sentence of death, evil, injustice, and everything breaks, but everything starts to heal. And immediately in that moment, we read in verse 37 and 38, something just incredible happens. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. Jesus is very quiet, responding to things up until this moment. Like I said, he's being led. In this moment, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. And then, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In that moment of his death, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. What an odd occurrence. Something, a a building that's not exactly in that place, but it's further away, there's in the temple where the Jews would come and where they would see the, recognize the holiest place of holiest places, and there was a curtain in that temple where, where that would separate that, and people went to the temple to meet with God. This, te- this, this curtain was four inches thick. You know, a typical two-by-four is three and a half inches, so like just a half an inch, you know, like just a real thickness of a two-by-four, that's how thick it is, and in that moment, it rips completely top to bottom. It's as if in that moment, when Jesus dies, seems like everything breaks, but something new opens up. Something brand new takes place, healing starts. See, the temple was where people would want to meet with God. It was an access point for the Jews, but it also became an obstacle for everyone who wasn't welcome. And it also became an obstacle for those that that weren't Jewish. It became a place of non-access, of disconnection, of separation, and worse, Five days earlier, Jesus walks into the temple, condemns it as he flips the tables over, calls it a den of robbers, that they've turned this Father's house of prayer into a den of robbers. Religion got in the way instead of becoming the way. And in that moment, God presses reset. God presses reset. Jesus walks into the temple five days earlier, condemns it. In this moment of his death, the curtain breaks open completely in two on his final death, right there in that final breath that he he has. And it's this moment again, Jesus dies, seems like everything breaks, but everything starts fresh. And God does this. Because remember, we were talking about these passive words, like Jesus was led, Jesus was taken, Jesus was handed over. It's a similar word, it's a similar kind of grammar here in this moment. It says, the curtain was torn. It's the passive voice. But now it's not the passive voice, something happening to Jesus, it's something happening to the temple. Now the temple, it's being done to the temple. It was done to the curtain by someone. In this moment, it seems like for this whole day, as Jesus is doing nothing, as Jesus is like it's being done to him, in this moment, God becomes the agent again. And now his agency breaks the curtain in two, and his agency creates a new way. Jesus, it's incredible how this happens in this last moment the power that tears the curtain in two. And then in that moment, everyone is welcome. The door is open. The obstacle is no longer there. The final damage of sin on people's lives does not have to be held on them. Death will not win. Injustice will not win. Oppression will not win. Pain and evil will not win. And the access to knowing God in that freedom and fullness, but also in forgiveness and and now open to everybody is is now happening. See, the physical temple that would eventually be destroyed no longer needed to be rebuilt. The barrier was gone. The hierarchy is dismantled. All the the intermediary steps for someone to connect with God was now gone. In fact, in Revelation 21, 22, it says when when John sees, like in eternity in heaven, in God's space, he, he doesn't see a temple. He says, there's no temple. There's no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The way is now open for you, for me, for everybody we lock eyes with. The way is now open because of what Jesus did. I'm going to invite the team to come up. But I want to read this scripture for you, Hebrews 10, 19, 22. I think it just reminds us so well of what happens in this moment, what's, what's accomplished in this moment, what's available for you and me in this moment, what's available for our friends and neighbors and coworkers that long to know God, that long, that, 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 that believe that there's a God who wants to know them, but they don't know how to know him. And I, I love how Hebrews describes this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place that's that's temple language by the blood of jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near to god with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The way is open for you, for me, for everyone. This is accomplished on this day for us. One writer, Philip Hughes, says it this way. Uh, Read it with me off the screen. He says, the way that was formerly closed is now open. At the moment of his death on the cross, the menacing and obstructing curtain was ripped from top to bottom, indicating that God had acted and the way into his holy presence is now open. And it's like the ending of an old world and the beginning of a new world. What happens on Easter weekend, what happens at the cross and then eventually in the resurrection is actually the most significant step into what we should really believe the new world is. Not what we're told about predictions or this or that or it's something happening in our planet, something happening that's on the verge of a new innovation. This is all cool stuff, but the real new world happens here. Now the way is open for all of us to know God. You are welcome to come near to God. And this day, during crucifixion, not to just any person, but to God in Christ, God substituting himself in Christ, exhausted the evil and sin of the world on the cross and he did that for you and he did that for me you guys can start if you like just think about that he did that for you he did that for me now not only for me I know he also did it for you but not only for you he did it for us not only for us he did it for people who aren't here he did it for our neighbors he did it for our friends our family members he even did it for those who curse God all day. He, Jesus did it for his enemies. Jesus did it for those who put him on the cross. Jesus did it for the chief priests who were planning from the, the top of the day in their journals, man, if we can accomplish one thing today, let's see Jesus die. He did it for them too. He did it for the Roman soldier. He did it for Pilate did it for everybody. He did it for everybody so everybody can respond to his invitation, to life and relationship and hope and forgiveness and freedom. So everyone can walk from the old life to the new life. So everybody can walk from death to life. So everybody can move from hope to despair, from despair to hope. So everyone, everyone can be made whole, can be freed, can be forgiven. And we've got to remember this. This was not accomplished just by someone who was crucified. And this was not just accomplished by a king. This was not just accomplished by suffering and not just accomplished by a servant. This was accomplished by a crucified king. By a crucified king. That's what makes the difference. God in Christ inserts himself. Let's pray. If you're in this, here in this moment and just something just uh, opened up for you where you began to understand what God has done for you in Christ on the cross, and you just feel prompted in your heart to respond, To him, to this invitation. He already made the way open for you. And he's inviting you in to follow him, to know him, to discover new life in him. Would you respond? Would you say yes to that invitation? Would you? welcome his welcome to you would you allow him to lead your life to be king of your life he's a truly unique different kind of king the only kind of king we want leading our lives would you respond to him and say yes yes jesus i want to follow you yes jesus i want you to lead my life yes jesus i want to know you and through you i want to know your father and your spirit and take a moment and think about not just the evil and suffering and pain and injustice in the world but how that also runs through your own heart because it runs through our hearts and as much as God substituted himself under his own sentence against evil and suffering and death and pain, he also did that because that, that strikes through our heart. And he wants to free us from that. Would you acknowledge that sin, the aspects of evil that run through you and me, the rebellion and resistance that's in us? Would you acknowledge that? And in repentance, say, Jesus, I want to turn away from that because you are making a way for me towards freedom. Yes, God, I just pray for everyone here in this moment, God. May we, me included, God, just come before you in this moment. God, I pray with gratitude, with awe, with wonder, with joy, because of what you have done for humanity. You have made a way open. Thank you, our crucified King. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us. Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.